Hello, and welcome to High Viz, the Cause James Westgarth construction podcast. My name is Sarah Strose, and I'm a lawyer in the Brisbane Projects team. Today, I'm joined by partner Andrew McCormack and senior associate James Arclay, both from the Brisbane Projects team and consultant and Melbourne University lecturer Wayne Jokic to discuss a number of recent developments, including amendments to Queensland's security of payment legislation and two significant recent New South Wales Supreme Court decisions. In early February, the Queensland Parliament introduced the Building Industry Fairness, Security of Payment and Other Legislation Amendment Bill. This bill is the Queensland Government's response to the Building Industry Fairness Reform's Implementation and Evaluation Panel Report, which proposed amendments to the Queensland Security of Payment legislation. In particular, the bill replaces the project bank accounts regime with a simplified model of project trust accounts. Andrew, firstly, what are project trust accounts and how do they work? Well, a project bank account as it currently is or a project trust account as it's going to be are, as the name suggests, trust accounts um, into which money is paid by a principal for work done by a contractor under a building contract that is subject to the new regime. Now, the important thing to understand is that these are trust accounts. That means that the money in them is ring-fenced from the other assets of the head contractor, so that in the event of the insolvency of the head contractor, the proceeds of the trust account do not form part of the assets available to creditors. They are preserved for the beneficiaries of the trust account, which will be subcontractors who've been engaged by the uh, head contractor to do the job. Um, The current legislation mandates that uh, a project bank account is required in certain circumstances, and they're quite limited circumstances. Um, This bill will make an important change when it becomes law in that it will extend the reach of project trust accounts as they're now known. So, I understand that the project trust account regime will be implemented progressively. What are the proposed phases? Well, I think it might be helpful to start with a quick recap. What does the law currently say about when a project bank account is required? Well, currently, if you have a a construction contract for building work, as defined under the security payment legislation, and that is with a government client, so a government client is the principal, and the value of the contract is between one and $10 million, then you need a project bank account. Um, Now that's a fairly limited category of uh, projects that would be required to have a project bank account. And that was deliberate because really, I think this was an extended trial period to see how the project bank account regime worked and what industry feedback was um, garnered. The learnings from that uh, trial and also the feedback given by the panel that you mentioned before have led to this bill. So what will change? Well, I think firstly, the important thing uh, is to understand that the current project bank accounts chapter of the legislation, chapter two, is going to be uh, removed and replaced with a new chapter that's set out in the bill that deals with statutory trusts. And as we alluded to before, these will now be known as project trust accounts. There's also some terminology changing. Um, What is currently defined as building work will now be called project trust work, 
although the, the breadth of the definition is largely unchanged. Um, the requirement to actually establish a project bank account will be extended progressively in phases. Um, the first phase, which um, is helpfully phase 2A, will apply from the 1st of July this year, 2020. It will require government contracts, contracts with a government or a, an HHS, a health and hospital service is the principal, which are valued at over $1 million and where 50% of that contract price is for project trust work, you will have to have a project trust account. The next phase, phase 2B, will come in, we think, because the dates are still to be confirmed for these phases, uh, from the 1st of July 2021. That will apply to both government and private projects, so it doesn't have to be just a government project, with a value of over $10 million. Phase three is likely to commence from the 1st of January 2022. Uh, that will extend uh, the project trust account requirement to government and private projects valued over $3 million. So the, the value is coming down. And finally, phase four, which we think will come into force from the 1st of July 2022, will extend to all government and private projects with a value of over a million dollars the requirement for a project bank account. Um, to be clear, all the amounts that I've just talked about are GST exclusive amounts, and each phase is an extension of the last. It doesn't replace the previous phase, it just adds a new category of contract to the uh, list of those requiring this project trust account. I see. And finally, Andrew, are there any other important amendments in the bill that people should be aware of? Well, the bill deals with quite a few issues and um, some of them are more notable than others. Um, I think one item that certainly uh, any principal uh, listening should uh, be aware of is it will now be an offence carrying um, a, a charge of penalty units to be paid to uh, pay less than the amount that a principal agrees to pay when it issues a payment schedule in response to a payment claim. Um, a second notable feature is that uh, previously the project bank account was really actually three trust accounts, uh, a general account which was for normal payments under the contract. There was also what was known as a disputed funds account and a retention trust account. Now, those second two requirements have been uh, removed and replaced with some slightly different arrangements. So the project trust account now is just a general account for making payments into under the contract. Um, what does that mean then in terms of these uh, new arrangements? Well, where a claimant, that's uh, in this language, that's a subcontractor, has obtained an adjudication determination. So it's been through the adjudication process under the legislation, got an outcome that says, yes, you're entitled to a payment. That claimant or subcontractor can then give what's called a, a payment withholding request to the principal under the head contract, who then is required to retain money from the payments it makes to a head contractor to cover the adjudicated amount. Um, in terms of retention monies, um, all contractors and principals who uh, have a contract that is governed by a project uh, trust account 
will now be required to open a separate retention trust account into which all retention monies they are required to hold are then paid. So the retention money will also be held in a separate trust account again to protect it in the event of an insolvency of the head contractor. Uh, a final point to, to note again for any uh, principals uh, who are listening is that uh, there is no longer the ability for the principal to take over and, and administer a project trust account in the event that the head contractor goes insolvent. Under the current legislation that is in fact uh, possible but the uh, legislation will be changed by the bill and only the QBCC, the regulator, will have the ability to step in and administer a trust account where the head contractor who established that trust account has gone insolvent. Thank you, Andrew. Wayne, you will be discussing a recent New South Wales Supreme Court decision, BH Australia Constructions and Capella. Can you tell us exactly what happened in that case? This case was a front-end lawyer's nightmare. So it concerned the construction of someone's home. That party was clear. It just wasn't clear, though, who the builder was. Uh, And this is obviously a a real nightmare. So it was clear, moderately clear, that it was either Company A or Company B, but there were signs that pointed in both directions. So the companies had changed names at various times. They used the same or or similar logos. Uh, There were complications with email addresses, uh, licensing numbers, very, very hard to work out uh, who the contracting party was. And as you might expect, that really mattered because one of the companies went into insolvency while the other one remained solvent. So this is a vitally important question for the homeowners who are concerned about whether they had a contract with a live company or a dead one. So how was it resolved? Did the case break any new legal ground? So in many ways... This is a really unfortunate situation, but it's not a hugely novel one. I think, though, that there are two things that come out of this decision. It's a decision by Justice Leeming, uh, a very, very capable judge of the New South Wales Court of Appeal. So the first thing that's important to note is that Justice Leeming was able to identify a particular contracting party and to do that by way of interpretation So did that by interpreting the words and circumstances rather than using the doctrine of rectification. And a recent High Court case that some people will be aware of, the Simic case, suggested perhaps that rectification was the appropriate doctrine. And it seems that Justice Leeming recognised, in accordance with long tradition, that there's still, if you like, a slip rule where you can correct obvious errors where you're well and truly satisfied that the error has been made and what the correction is. So it was dealt with by a way of interpretation rather than rectification. That's the first issue. The second interesting thing is that a real legal problem in this case was whether you could take into account post-contractual conduct to work out who the contracting party was. We know that courts are very reluctant typically to consider anything that's taken place after the contract is formed in the interpretation of the terms. There's a slightly different question, though, because it's about who the contracting party is. So Justice Leeming considered this issue at length and eventually determined that uh, the evidence of post-contractual conduct was inadmissible, so not uh, capable of being heard. But it does raise an interesting question. So all in all, this is not a terribly complex case. I don't think it develops any enormously uh, substantial new law, but frankly, it's a reminder of the importance of getting the details right. 
all of this could have been avoided if the parties had been very clear uh, about who they actually were. Thank you for that, Wayne. James, you'll be discussing a recent New South Wales Supreme Court decision, White Constructions and PBS Holdings, which, as I understand, takes a look at delay analysis and, in particular, offers some commentary around the Society of Construction Law's Delay and Disruption Protocol. So, James, can you tell us what the case is about? No problem, Sarah. White Constructions was a dispute between a developer and two consultants relating to a project in the Illawarra region of New South Wales. Now, the project was a 100-lot subdivision, which required, among other things, the design and installation of sewerage infrastructure. The developer alleged that the consultant's acts and omissions had caused the project to run over time and caused the developer to suffer loss and damage. So questions of delay and who, as between the parties to the case, were responsible for it were issues in dispute. Now, these kinds of questions are, of course, very common in construction disputes, and expert opinion evidence is often required in order to allow courts and tribunals to determine them. That evidence is given by delay, or more accurately, programming experts, who assist the court or tribunal to determine the impact that particular delay events have had on activities within a construction program. There are various methodologies by which delay analysis can be undertaken, and delay analysis is notoriously technically complex. It involves very sophisticated analysis techniques and software. And so there are various publications that exist which try to demystify some of the concepts that are associated with delay analysis. And one of the best known is the Society of Construction Laws Delay and Disruption Protocol. And what's interesting about white constructions, as I'll come to in a moment, is some of the commentary that the case has about the protocol. Um, the protocol is now in its second edition, which was published in 2017, 15 years after the first. And what it does is outlines some of the core principles associated with delay and disruption and provides some general guidance um, about them, as well as an explanation of various methods by which delay analysis can be undertaken. Now, the protocol itself disavows any notion that it should be regarded as a statement of the law. It states that it is not intended to be a contract document, nor does it purport to take precedence over the express terms and governing law of a contract or constitute a statement of the law. And in white constructions, despite the protocol's acknowledgement that it was not intended as a statement of the law or of general application, um, Justice Hammerschlag described it as apparently having been accepted into programming or delay analysis law, L-O-R-E, by which his honour was referring to uh, a suggestion that is at times made within the industry that um, unless a delay analysis methodology is mentioned and supported by the delay and disruption protocol, it is illegitimate. Now, there is one Australian case in which... Um, a delay analyst's methodology was not accepted um, because it was not found to be a method that was recognised within the engineering profession and one of the reasons why that was found is because it was not mentioned in the protocol. But aside from that, there has really been limited um, judicial consideration of the protocol and support for the, um, the, the methodologies stated in the protocol. So all that's by way of introduction. I'll now briefly describe the facts of the White Constructions case. As I mentioned, the case involved a 100-lot subdivision in the Illawarra region of New South Wales, and the developer engaged two consultants, uh, one of whom was the designer of the sewerage infrastructure, and the other was a water servicing coordinator 
who was responsible for coordinating with Sydney Water, the relevant statutory authority, to obtain approval of the sewerage design. The developer separately engaged a contractor to perform the construction works under a construct-only contract. Now, in white, the White Construction's case, the developer claimed damages from its two consultants, alleging that they had failed to prepare and have approved a satisfactory sewerage design, which had delayed completion of the development and caused the developer's loss. And a large component of that loss was alleged to be delay costs that the developer would have to pay its construction contractor due to the prolongation of the project. The developer's contention was that were it not for its consultants' breaches, the project would have been completed in July 2016, when in fact the project was delivered in March 2017. The court ultimately found that the developer had failed to establish liability on the part of the consultants, but nevertheless gave detailed consideration to the party's delay evidence. Um, and it's really those aspects of the court's decision that we're interested in today. So both the developer and the consultants called delay experts to give evidence in the case, and I think it's fair to say that they did not agree on much. They disagreed with each other as to what was the appropriate delay analysis method to be adopted, and they also disagreed with how the other had applied the method that the other had selected. They reached what the court described as profoundly differing conclusions. The developer's expert considered that the project could have been completed by July 2016, and that the delayed approval of a sewerage design had caused 240 days delay. The consultant's expert, on the other hand, considered that at best the project would not have been finished before February 2017 due to various reasons, including variations that had been directed which were unrelated to the sewerage works. Both parties' experts selected methods to analyse delay that are referred to in the protocol. In the case of the consultants, the collapsed as-built method of analysis was selected, and in the case of the developer, the as-planned versus as-built Windows method of analysis was selected. Now, remarking on the reports that were delivered, the court described them as complex and to the unschooled impenetrable. As a consequence of that, the court said that it found it necessary to use a procedure permitted by the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules of New South Wales to obtain advice from a third expert to enable it to critically evaluate the party's experts' opinions. And the court remarked that it found the assistance by the third expert invaluable and had acted on it. The court said that his advice demonstrated that the complexity that has been introduced is a distraction, um, and the court ultimately acted on the third expert's advice, preferring it to the findings of either of the party-appointed experts. Now, as to what was said about the protocol and the delay analysis methodologies and debate that had arisen between the party-appointed experts, the court interestingly said that for the purposes of any particular case, the fact that a method appears in the protocol does not give it any standing, and the fact that a method which is otherwise logical or rational does not appear in the protocol does not deny its standing. So in essence, merely because the party-appointed experts had used delay analysis methodologies that are referred to in the delay and disruption protocol did not necessarily mean that they had to be right. Uh, another method could be the appropriate one for use in this particular case, having regard to the facts and what was in issue. The court also found that neither of the methods adopted by the party-appointed experts was appropriate in the case at hand, and that instead what was required was close consideration and examination of the actual evidence of what was happening on the ground to reveal if the delay in approving the sewerage design had actually played a role in delaying the project, and if so, 
how and by how much. In effect, the court said, what was required was a common law, common sense approach to causation. So really what the court is saying is that close regard needs to be had to the actual evidence of what was happening on the project uh, and that debates about appropriate delay analysis methodologies should not distract from those issues. In its reasons, the court had particular regard to a site diary which had been maintained by the construction contractor, which the court described as comprehensive and well kept. And the court remarked that the developer had taken the court to very little of the contents of this important contemporaneous record um, and said that the inference to be drawn is that that contemporaneous record did not support the developer's case. The court said that although the diary made references to the delayed sewerage design, it did not support any particular finding that activities on site had been delayed as a consequence of it. In fact, the, the diary showed that the work was progressing on site, even without the delayed sewerage design. The developer had also sought to rely on some evidence given by a site supervisor that was employed by its construction contractor, but the court found that it was overly general and therefore incapable of founding any specific findings of delay. I see. What lessons can be learned from the court's decision? Well, without commenting specifically on the parties to this case, some general principles emerge from the decision that are of use and should be borne in mind. For project participants, the case really highlights the importance of contemporaneous document management and record keeping. Um, there is a real discipline that's involved in keeping accurate, comprehensive, contemporaneous records of what is happening on site from day to day. But those kinds of documents can be invaluable if a disagreement later arises or indeed a dispute. Now, it's very important that such records be kept um, and well organised so that if the need does arise at a later stage, they can be marshaled quickly and analysed for the purpose of any dispute. I think there are also a few lessons for experts that arise out of this case, which is that reports by experts need to be written very clearly so that they're capable of being understood both by experts um, on the other side and also by the parties and the court or tribunal who will ultimately be determining the matter. While there will at times be legitimate debates about delay analysis methodologies that need to be addressed, it's important that those sorts of questions do not distract from the real issues that require resolution. Andrew, James and Wayne, I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for joining me. My name is Sarah Strose and you have been listening to the Cause HiViz podcast and we look forward to you joining us for our next edition of HiViz. This podcast is for reference purposes only and does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.